Did you ever think you'd become a parent to your parents? It happened to me a lot earlier than I expected, and I kept a diary. Okay, Ernest Hemingway, here's your mug that says Ernest Hemingway on it. Okay, good. Be sure to drink your Ensure, and I'll make you a milkshake later. Okay. I'm Kitty Isley. I host 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. It came from my experience, moving back home to take care of my dad as he aged and trying to find advice about how to do it. I called friends and experts and complete strangers to ask about everything from how to give my dad a shave to how to talk about dying. And sometimes hearing about other people's crazy experiences made me laugh and feel a lot less alone. Y'all, I put sanitizer on my mother's hand and then she ate it. I want to make it easier for us to take care of the people we love when they can't care for themselves. I hope you'll give it a listen. You can find 24-7, a podcast about caregiving at tpr.org slash 247 and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, March 24th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi, everybody. Rachel Kors of Stat News. Morning, Julie. And today, my colleague, Mary Agnes Carey of KHN, who has graciously agreed to host for me next week while I take a few days off. It's great to be here. Let us get straight to the news because there's more than enough of it. Wednesday marked the 12th birthday of the Affordable Care Act, which is most definitely a tween. Let us go around the table. I want each of you to name what you think is the ACA's most important legacy 12 years in. Uh, And you can't say that it's still alive, even though that may be its most important legacy. Mac, what's what's the most important thing that the ACA has brought us? Just the millions of people that have been able to access and keep coverage, right? To take away that fear of you want to start your own business or you can't afford uh, health insurance or you don't want to change a job because you are afraid of not having your health insurance. I just think to have millions of people insured and it's just become part of the conversation. It's not the outlier, you know, that it was for years and years and under this threat of repeal and replace and this legal threat at the Supreme Court. I'm not saying that's over. I mean, if, you know, definitely Republicans still dislike it. And if they take control of Congress and the White House, they might try to repeal it again. They still don't have a unified replacement. But I just think that it has had staying power. And that has been an incredible legacy. I I did notice this month that when I think it was Senator Rick Scott, wasn't it, who muttered about repealing it, he had to walk it back the very next day, um, which is unusual for Republicans. Um, Rachel, what's the most long lasting legacy of this 12 year old law? Yeah, So I think mine's related. But I think just as someone in my mid 20s who kind of grew up with the Affordable Care Act in place, I think just the expectation 
for people with pre-existing conditions or, you know, that young adults can stay on their their parents' healthcare plan until 26. You know, becoming a healthcare reporter, learning so much more about it. I was kind of surprised to learn that these, you know, used to be accepted practices before the ACA. So I think just taking a step forward in ensuring access, like not just with cost, but also legally to ensure more continuous coverage, especially for people who need it most. Anna. Um, I think it's really difficult to choose one. And those were two really good ones. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind for me is what I'll just I'll say, and that's uh, Medicaid expansion and reaching so many low income people who were sort of um, in this weird you know, zone before where the health coverage is just unaffordable, but they didn't quite fit into Medicaid either. And so um, I'm going to go with that one, which is what I was going to go with. But <laughs> since you did, I'm I'm going to go with I'm going to go with all the stuff that people don't know is actually in the bill. Starting with the um, the the minimum loss ratios, the fact that people that insurers can no longer make an unlimited amount of profit off of each in premium dollar, uh, and the the coverage of the no cost coverage of preventive care, and things that you know, as Rachel was saying, we all kind of take for granted unless you're old enough to remember when it wasn't there. Like many laws, there's a lot of things that this law brought to us that people have no idea. One of the continuing paradoxes of the ACA, though, which boosted insurance coverage dramatically, yet left millions of Americans still uninsured or insured but unable to afford care, is that this time next year, things might well look either much better or much worse, as my friend Jonathan Cohn, who sat with me in the House Press Gallery 12 years ago when Congress took the final ACA votes, wrote this week, quote, officials in Washington and state capitals face a series of key decisions about the future of Obamacare, and depending on what they decide, literally millions of people could gain or lose health insurance, although not too many people outside of political and policy circles seem to have noticed. What are some of those decisions and why is it so low key that one would think that this would be as big a deal as some of these big repeal fights? I was going to say that I think the same thing Mac was talking about is like, there's just so much going on right now. You know, for some people, COVID still being at the forefront of their minds, the war in Ukraine. And so, you know, some of this stuff has just dropped off. And you just talked about like, we kind of take it for granted. I think we're at a point where the ACA has survived so much. And it's just not something people think about as not that it's threatened even now in the same way, but just that, you know, maybe the other things aren't at the top of mind. And I really appreciated Jonathan's um, article because it did remind me even of, of these things. And, and one being that there was a lot of subsidy help in the the COVID relief package, and that helped people, you know, be able to afford insurance. And that's going to go away. It needs to be renewed. You know, I was going to say some of it just might be the framing of it too, right? In the sense of if you get people coverage, people get in earlier. The doctor might stop something from becoming a chronic, life threatening illness. Right? Helps out with uncompensated care, which hospitals, you know, are covering. But if you get insurance coverage for folks, it helps even that out. I mean, some of this has been viewed in kind of a different framework, but I think if there's a more holistic, if you will, view of what coverage means for the system, for state budgets, for federal budgets, as well as people's own budgets, that it's kind of a different framing that might make this more acceptable than the idea of the federal government's overpaying for subsidies or shouldn't pay states or states are reluctant to expand their Medicaid rules. I mean, there's a much bigger, broader, lasting impact here that doesn't really get a lot of attention. Although if Congress doesn't figure out a way to extend these subsidies, people are going to see 
really high premiums exactly. right before the midterm election. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I think that's the part that, that surprises me that's not getting more attention. No, I think you're, you're spot on, and they don't want that to happen. That would not help the Democrats yeah. at all. But Republicans also know that would not help the Democrats. And plus, I think the unspooling of the Medicaid requirements that during the pandemic, states have been required to keep everybody who qualified for Medicaid on the rolls. And obviously, when the public health emergency ends, those people won't all still be qualified. And how states unravel that is also going to be huge. I mean, we, you know, there, we know that there are states that still have not technically expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, but there could be an enormous amount of disruption. I think that's what sort of Jonathan was was leaning towards. And I think people aren't really appreciating how much disruption there could actually be. Certainly. And the Biden administration is, you know, facing pressure from states, which are in a tough position themselves because they're, you know, having to pay for people who might not qualify for the program. And during the public health emergency, that was, you know, a trade off. And obviously they got more money from the federal government to help with that. But for some states, the trade-off is not worth it at this point. So I think it's very much something that CMS officials are talking about and are very concerned about ensuring states are on the same page, but they only have so much control over that. Yeah. Well, speaking of unfinished business of the Affordable Care Act, the Commonwealth Fund is out with a report on short-term health plans, those things that the Obama administration tried to rein in and the Trump administration went around and unrestricted. Um, Well, it turns out the concerns expressed by health analysts were real. When you make it easy to get cheaper plans that cover fewer services, healthy people are more likely to migrate to those plans. Yet this is one of the Trump health policies that the Biden administration hasn't touched yet, probably because these short-term plans are, well, for healthy people, kind of popular. So is is this just going to sort of limp on or is this going to maybe the Biden administration feel like it's going to have to do something about these plans again now that we're showing that it, it is siphoning off healthy people and making, you know, leaving sicker people in the Affordable Care Act uh, risk pools? Maybe it's a question of political capital and timing. I mean, if you think about all the things we've just talked about, right, and and all the other things in the ACA, whether it's the family glitch or the coverage gap, or you want to get the subsidies continued so more people can buy coverage, you've got all that on your plate. How much time do you want to spend pursuing something that would be perceived as taking something away from people who like these plans? I mean, a lot of people like them because, like you say, they're inexpensive. Now, they don't know or maybe and if you're pretty healthy and you don't use exactly. health insurance, it right. feels like a great deal. So I would <laughs> think, yeah, when you're running the table and you're looking at all the priorities, that may not be top of the list. Others might disagree, but that was kind of my thought when you asked your question. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I've been wondering. I'm obviously we're keeping track of these these Trump policies as Biden reverses them, and this is one that's been sort of sticking out as remaining untouched because they've actually gotten to a fair number of them in 14 or 15 months. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a report from the Consumer Finance. Financial Protection Bureau about medical debt and suggesting that the agency might encourage the big three credit bureaus to stop including it in credit reports because, as often as not, it's not even really debt, but expenses that consumers never agreed to. Well, lo and behold, last week, those three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, jointly announced that they would eliminate up to 70% of medical debts, including ones that were paid after they went to collection and everything under $500 from people's credit reports. Credit reporting agencies will also give consumers more time, a full year after going to collection rather
rather than the current six months to sort out those medical spending disputes between their providers and their insurers. It's not clear if this was to head off even more stringent action by the CFPB or whether that might still come later. But in the meantime, this is a pretty big deal, right? Rachel, you were covering this. Yes, I've been tracking. I think, yeah, the Wall Street Journal had a good scoop about this action that was coming. And I think there are questions about the relationship between medical debt and how well that predicts how likely people are to pay other debts in the future. Um, So I think it does raise questions about how valuable that is. And I think it'll be interesting to watch as these new decisions play out, whether it kind of takes a tool out of providers' toolbox, you know, and threatening collections for patients. So I think that'll be um, interesting to see kind of how those debt collection tactics adjust. Yeah, I, I know we see with Bill of the Month, I mean, pretty much it's it's a recurring thing that, you know, patients get all freaked out when they get these bills that they aren't technically responsible for, but they think, oh, it's going to ding my credit report and I'd like to buy a house someday. Exactly. And I mean, there's these companies, they're called revenue cycle management companies that hospitals contract with to manage this debt collection process. You know, they're many times they're very aggressive. So it's a step that, you know, restores some power to patients in, you know, having some leverage in this process to make sure insurers and providers are working out their issues and there's less of a threat to the patients um, and their financial stability in the future. It seems sort of in the spirit of the the Anti-Surprise Bills Act, even though it's not technically part of it. It's also a step that recognizes the disconnect between medical debt and like not being a responsible person who pays their bills. Like you can rack up debt and have no idea because the hospital billing system is so terrible. Or it can take you a very, very long time. It's shown at Kaiser um, again and again to like get these things resolved. So I think that that was a recognition that having medical debt does not mean that you won't pay your mortgage or something like that. Or your credit card bills. Right. And while this does, it's going to help a lot of people, it doesn't help, if I understand it right, people with some of the largest bills that they've already accrued right? And they're fighting off these debt collectors and so on. And that progress is progress, right? That's great. But that's something to keep in mind here. If, if you've got this already existing debt and it's voluminous and people are pursuing you, this won't necessarily help you. I mean, other things might help you pay that off. But again, this is a great thing to happen. But there's still a lot of people out there. And, and you know, accruing medical debt, to Anna's point, it's not like over excess consumer spending, right? This is like something you didn't plan on. You didn't want to happen to you. You find out your insurance doesn't cover things or you're not insured and bam, it just it can happen very quickly. Yeah, a little preview of a of a coming bill of the month. Uh, it's for nearly half a million dollars. Oh my! So I mean, Whoa. yeah, it's Ooh. it can it it's pretty easy to rack it up really fast. Welcome to the the spiraling cost of medical care. Well, I thought this week we really wouldn't have to talk about abortion. Uh, in fact, the ongoing confirmation hearing for Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson has had less discussion of abortion than any Supreme Court nomination hearing I can remember since the 1980s, which is sort of if not that surprising, given that there are clearly already six anti-abortion votes on the court and her confirmation one way or the other isn't going to change that. But two more state laws got signed by governors this week, a Texas copycat ban in Idaho, except that the Idaho law would ban all abortions instead of those after six weeks gestation, like the Texas law has been doing. And even less noticed is a law signed in South Dakota that would basically overrule the FDA's easing of rules, allowing the mailing of abortion pills. Both of these appear to be among the leading waves of how anti-abortion states plan to deal with the likely
likely overturn or significant weakening of Roe v. Wade later this spring or summer. Are we just going to see more of this as this decision nears? I know we've been talking the last few weeks about how states have sort of surprisingly not copied Texas right away, but maybe it just took them a few months. We're in we're in March when, you know, most state legislatures are sort of nearing the ends of their sessions and actually passing whatever it is they're going to pass. And I see you nodding. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking was there was some timing there when, you know, the legislatures are, are kind of getting into the last of their business, passing what they really want to get passed. And, and that's part of it. And certainly they're emboldened by Texas. They've had a little time to see how it's played out and just to have an idea of whether it's something they wanted to tackle, but whether, you know, it's something legally they thought they could go after. And certainly the floodgates are kind of open. I found it interesting. Apparently, after the Idaho governor signed the law, he then put out a message that said he doesn't think that the enforcement method, which is this idea of let's get around the Supreme Court by having people sue providers in civil court, so there's nobody to then sue to block the law. Um, the Idaho governor is not sure that that is constitutional, but apparently he went ahead and signed the bill anyway. Right. And it was, you almost just need the threat of the enforcement mechanism, not the actual ability to do it, because that is scaring doctors enough. I read a terrible story that was written in the beginning of March. I was on NPR. It just kind of made it into my inbox. But I, I saw that there was a woman in Texas who went into early childbirth. And the only thing, I mean, it was so early, the baby wasn't viable. And the only thing they could do was possibly, you know, was to terminate the pregnancy surgically to save her life. But they were so scared in Texas, they had to find out ways to get her on a plane to another state while she was in the middle of this. And the doctors weren't even talking to her about it. They were texting it out on their phones so that they wouldn't be overheard by anybody else, like trying to help her out. And that's all it kind of takes is the threat of of something like being sued. Right. Well, that's sort of the magic of these laws, which is that they have basically shut down abortions because it's basically an unlimited liability or a potentially unlimited liability. If you get caught or reported or sued, at the very least, you're going to get dragged into court. So I imagine, you know, we now have two states and I know there's other states with this sort of thing in the pipeline. Okay, let's turn to COVID. Um, Depending on which numbers you're watching, the U.S. appears to have passed or is just about to pass the grim milestone of a million COVID deaths. And I think it's worth taking just a moment to absorb that. Literally one out of every 330 people in this country have died of this virus in just the past two years. How is that not the biggest headline of the week? I have to say, I remember being on the podcast when it was hitting 400,000 and thinking, I couldn't believe it, right? And now we're double that. I mean, we have this sort of fatigue, and I understand it, about COVID, right? Before the podcast began taping, we're all chatting about mask wearing or lack thereof and people's attitudes towards people who want to wear a mask or don't want to wear a mask. I mean, people are worn down. It's going into the third year. And I understand all that, and I'm feeling it myself. But to your point, I mean, look at that number. It's just nuts, and and the fact that we you know we've got variants on the rise and and fights over funding and are we going to have enough shots do we even need another booster i mean you know those you could have podcasts on all those individually right but i just think there's this collective weariness that is understandable but also you know it's just not over 
It's just not. And we have to keep living with this. And I think we've also collectively decided that if you die, you it was your fault. You didn't get vaccinated, probably. And and we're seeing that's not absolutely true. But it or seems, you're old, or, God forbid, or have a, pre, you know, a, a condition that might make you immunocompromised. Um, there are so many people that even if it's someone who decided not to get vaccinated, there's so much misinformation, so many people that we haven't reached. This isn't just like a throwaway segment of the society that we can say like, well, oh well, one million deaths, like they they weren't trying for themselves. And and the under five set can't even get vaccinated yet. The CDC decided, and obviously I am biased because I have a two-year-old, but... This, yes, <laughs> I would say you have an under five yeah, running like, around. Like the CDC decided that, you know, all protections should be, could be dropped pretty much before they even had a chance. I mean, and, and we're not, hopefully not that far away from something. They at least might have something in the form of a vaccine, but it feels like that goes to what Mac was talking about. People were just tired, wanting to give up want to win elections in in the long run. But I think that there's also been this idea that if you die, it's probably your fault. And on the Republican side, that even goes to like, if you're, they seem to be like, well, were they immunocompromised? And I, I don't understand why that's even a question. Yes, because like, if you're immunocompromised, it's also your fault. There, right, there does seem to imply. be this this collective, it's all about, you know, it's up to you. They've taken this libertarian view of public health, that it's up to you to protect yourself, and it's not up to the community to protect its vulnerable members, which is kind of where we where we seem to have landed after two years. Well, meanwhile, as Europe and Asia see cases of the BA2 variant spreading rapidly, the Biden administration is ratcheting up its warnings about what will happen if Congress doesn't appropriate more money, so we won't be caught flat-footed again in terms of testing and treatment and vaccines if another wave makes it to the U.S., as seems possible, if not likely. Uh, Anna, your extra credit this week is about exactly this. So why don't you tell us about it now? I chose one from Politico by David Lim. It's we've learned absolutely nothing. Tests could again be in short supply if COVID surges. There were a lot of great articles, I think, over the last week highlighting all the things that we're not going to have if there is another surge. And you know, testing very often, I think, gets left out of the conversation. It was something the Biden administration was very, very late to. And clearly, it hasn't lasted all that long. Because if there is another surge, and people do decide they want more of them, there are not enough, you know, that are that have been ordered. Um, David talked to manufacturers, he talked to politicians and people in the administration. And it is interesting to hear them say, like, if there's another surge, we really need to be able to have these resources. And they didn't do that before <laughs> they decided that they would drop all of the protections. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about treatments and even vaccines, if there might be fourth boosters for some needed. But I encourage everyone to read David's story just um, because testing kind of sometimes gets a little forgotten about. And of course, it's it's testing that where we figure out what of the rest of these things that we're going to need. Meanwhile, what's anybody hearing about getting the actual money through Congress? The administration seems to be continuing its claim that the money doesn't have to be offset because we're still in a health emergency. And they point out that previous COVID relief bills have not been offset. But the Republicans seem pretty intent right now on, you know, if there's going to be more money that they're going to need to find it and pay for it from somewhere. Are we just going to fight about 
about this until we have another wave? So I think the latest update, and I've been covering this, and I think it's worth noting, just stepping back and noticing that the White House did not sound the alarm before the vote happened. Like there was a lot of opportunity for them to start saying they were running out of money and they didn't say anything until a week before the vote happened. Although they they insist that they did. I mean, every time they now talk, they say, we asked in January and then we sent this letter, you know, two weeks later, blah, blah, blah. They asked a very, very small group of people who they thought were going to be calling the shots. And it turned out to be a very costly miscalculation on their part. Um, And I think there's, you know, maybe the first signs of realization that their strategy isn't working Senator Romney said yesterday, he, you know, told reporters on the Hill that he was expecting some more information from the White House on, you know, potential and I think Democratic leadership as well and some potential pay fors and some more potential information about what um, COVID money's out there right now. Senator Romney being one of the few Republicans who actually, I think, would like to, to, to cough up some more money. The thing is, I think there are some of them out there. It's kind of a mystery why they haven't done, you know, more intense engagement with these individuals. Senator Burr, I think, might, you know, be open to it. It's possible they could get to 10 on this, but it's just taken till this point for the White House to concede that these Republicans aren't going to budge without some more information. So we'll see kind of throughout the day today, tomorrow, kind of if that's enough, what they're providing, and kind of if those pay-fors are going to be politically viable. But I think we just saw kind of the first movement yesterday that maybe there might be some concessions going forward to break the stalemate. From from everything we can tell, it looks like we're definitely not done with this yet, and they're definitely running out of money. Um, well, finally, on COVID this week, another story I didn't see a lot of coverage of. I get there's a lot of other news. Um, a full-scale trial in Brazil of ivermectin, yes, the horse and dog warmer that many touted as a treatment for COVID. Well, that trial found that, drumroll please, ivermectin did not reduce hospitalizations or help patients get better any faster than a placebo. So please, can my horse just have his warmer back now? (laughs) (laughs) Is this going to finally sort of stop the run on on tractor supply stores for ivermectin? No, (laughs) no, I don't think so. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for your horse, but the people who are taking it and seeking it out at the tractor stores aren't probably paying attention to studies on it. (laughs) Particularly those from Brazil, I guess. Yeah, well, Brazil's the perfect place probably to do it because the president was so enamored with that drug and there was ability, you know, they like, sort of made it very available. I guess the myth of ivermectin will continue as long as the continuation of COVID does. Well, on a COVID... I was just going to say until yes, the next true. drug comes around. Until the next <laughs> drug, until the next magic elixir for COVID yeah. comes around. So on a COVID-related subject, President Biden this week signed the Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, which provides for up to $135 million in federal funding, mostly in the form of grants to hospitals, to address burnout and encourage health professionals to seek help if they are suffering from mental distress. It's named for a New York emergency room doctor who took her own life in the early weeks of the pandemic in 2020. But a doctor writing in Stat News this week worries that the bill won't do much beyond leading to, quote, more gimmicky and even more cringy wellness initiatives that do not even come close to addressing the root causes of the current mental health crisis affecting healthcare workers. I thought that was quite a colorful way to put it. I know I'm kind of a broken record on this, but I am truly and seriously worried 
about the mental health damage that's being done to our healthcare workforce by our failure to take even the most minimal measures to protect ourselves from the pandemic. Um, what could Congress actually do if it wanted to? I mean, what is it that that healthcare workers need beyond, as, as our, our writer so nicely puts it, cringy wellness initiatives? He actually, in that piece, wrote about one hospital that gave all of its residents a can of Coke and a can of Pringles. It was half literally. a can, right? Half a can of Pringles. It wasn't a even a full can. can. A mini can. <laughs> I mean, the same writer went on to make some, I thought, pretty interesting ideas. Could Congress create more residency positions, right? That is, I believe, goes through the Medicare program, created that. Could you pay residents more so they don't feel the financial pressures they currently pay? But to your broader point, Julie, I mean, our health care provider system, our health care workers in the hospitals, they are exhausted. They've been stretched thin. They're the, they bear the brunt of all these political fights we're talking about. If people are not wearing masks and, you know, it spreads or they're dealing with someone who doesn't want to get vaccinated and they feel like they're, you know, they're... Um, but we also we also have some healthcare workers who don't want to get vaccinated either. I know we've talked about that before on the podcast. But I think there are broad systemic issues that we all have to be thinking about and all coming up with. But I did think this particular piece that you mentioned, the idea of more residency positions, greater pay for residents, those could be two steps in the right direction to alleviate some of this some of these pressure points. Yeah, I know one of the things that we've seen with this is a lot of people just retiring early. Right. Baby boomers out. who were almost ready to retire, it's like, I don't need this, and getting out, and we're going to end up, you know, a lot of the the claims of healthcare worker shortages are more claims than anything else. But now I really think we're going to end up with a serious problem. I mean, obviously, we have spot shortages in certain places and among certain specialties. But I really think this could, you know, sort of decimate the ranks of healthcare workers and not just doctors, doctors, nurses, medical assistants, technicians. I mean, this is everybody who basically works in the healthcare system, who is exhausted from two years of just constant stress, uh, and, and really sort of no end in sight. Right. I mean, it's it, it feels like it feels like a more serious problem than anybody is sort of taking it. Yeah, I think there's a challenge for Congress too that this isn't entirely Congress's problem to solve. You know, if you think about because there Congress is really good at like throwing money at things, um, which is which is exactly here. what this bill does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I think like if you're actually thinking about what would help burnout, it's like maybe staffing ratios improving. So, and that's a decision that's made on the health provider side. And, you know, maybe it's increasing the, you know, permanent pay of your staff who decide to stay instead of just relying on these travel nurses. But the facilities are, you know, reluctant to do that because it's kind of sticky. Like once you raise pay, you can't really lower it back again when the demand goes down. So I think there are a lot of important questions for that healthcare providers need to take responsibility for um, in terms of how they viewed staffing in their budgets that it's not Congress's responsibility to fix. That's true. Congress can't. This this may be one of those things that, that needs to be fixed at a more granular level, or at least needs to be fixed together. All right. Well, in one more update of a bill that we talked about just last week, apparently the House is not going to just follow the Senate and vote to make daylight saving time permanent. In fact, health experts are rallying around the position that if we're going to stop changing the clocks twice a year, we really should make standard time permanent instead. Is this whole effort now dead, or might we get an actual debate and decision on it. I, I can't decide. It, you know, there was there was, in fact, a House hearing before the Senate voted. Are they going to are they just going to sort of 
thumb their nose at it or are we going to actually look at what is a not obviously in the context of other things going on in the world, not the most important issue, but an issue that affects everybody in the United States? I, I don't know if we'll if we'll actually get a debate on it. I think that as soon as the Senate passed it, the the response was to the Senate actually doing something was like most people um, saying how horrible it was because they didn't want to wake up with it being dark outside. And then there were people, at, which I didn't know, bringing up, I think it was in 1974 where this was actually done and everyone hated it so much that they immediately reverted back to changing the clock. I was in high school. I do. I actually remember it. I didn't think it was so terrible. Yeah. But. <laughs> but I wonder if that is um, at all impacting the House's decision to move or not. I will be amused to see if this actually comes up for a serious debate. But, but there are, I mean, there, you know, a lot of these sort of sleep experts have now been able to say, you know, changing the clocks twice a year is not great for our health. And we should probably do something different. Although they do seem to think that permanent daylight savings time is the least best change. So we will see how this plays out, too. All right. That is the news for this week. It is now time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week. We think you should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, Anna, you've already done your extra credit this week. Rachel, why don't you go next? Sure. So mine is piece in The Guardian, um, and the headline is Bidding Against the NHS and a billion-dollar private hospital to open in central London by Julia Coeli. I just really thought this piece did a great job of examining kind of the implications of a big, fancy, like Cleveland Clinic location in central London. I mean, there was details about, you know, views of Buckingham Palace, like it captured the tension of, you know, these really name brand U.S. institutions moving abroad to healthcare systems where there's this dual track, like public-private options for people and um, the potential that they'll be pulling staff and only performing really profitable services that help these other facilities operate. So I think it was just a nuanced story. Um, this this trend of U.S. hospitals opening international locations, I know Kaiser Health News has gr- done great coverage of that issue as well, but I think this is just a great case study and an example of these clinics seeking profit abroad where the healthcare systems aren't structured the same way the United States is. Yeah, I know. Most of them, I mean, have been in sort of places like Dubai and, mm-hmm. you know, where, where there are where there are a lot of rich people and maybe not that much medical expertise. And this one to sort of plunk it down in the middle of London where the, the British are extremely possessive of their national health system strikes me as like super interesting. Mac. So uh, my pick comes from our KHN colleague, Liz Sabo. The headline is COVID Silver Lining, Research Breakthroughs for Chronic Disease, Cancer, and the Common Flu. And it's it could be indeed a silver lining if all these billions of dollars that have been invested in COVID vaccines and COVID-19 research could yield medical and scientific dividends for decades, right? Helping doctors battle these horrendous diseases that have been with us forever, cancer, influenza, cystic fibrosis, uh, colorectal cancer, melanoma, this kind of thing. It's, uh, there's a lot of science in it, but Liz unpacks it beautifully. Just to simplify this idea that harnessing the vaccine technology to help fight other diseases would indeed be a silver lining to COVID. Um, COVID is a horrible thing. 
it, it's been just a, a huge tragedy. But if some good could come out of it in this way, that would be terrific. I also have a KHN story this week from Sarah Varney, and it's called As States Impose Abortion Bans, Young Doctors Struggle and Travel Far to Learn the Procedure. And it's about the effort to end abortion by cutting off the supply of abortion providers. Those doctors in training who want to learn to do the procedures, but who are encountering increasing difficulties. Uh, and it could have serious side effects. Many of the procedures used for early abortions are the same ones used for other non-elective uh, abortion uh, pregnancy complications, including miscarriages and other problems that threaten the life or health of the pregnant woman. It's a part of the abortion debate that really ought not to go ignored. And it's a really good story. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna? At Anna Edney. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Mac? At Mary Agnes Curie. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.